Father, today we want to focus on you and know that all these concerns and prayers are in your hand, and we trust that you are working in all of these circumstances. You're working to bring unbelievers to yourself, to heal marriages, to heal bodies, to provide funding and all of the issues that concern us. And we know that you use them as well to uh, mature us and to move us and to change us. And we desire this morning to submit to you and submit to your word as we look at this very important passage that it would come alive to us. We commit our time to you, uh, desiring that your spirit illumine our hearts and our minds to understand your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at the very, very important passage. I've been introducing it as the heart of the book of Romans and also the heart of the New Testament. And as a result, we could say that it is also the heart of all of the Bible because it deals with a revelation or a display of who God is And that display is in relationship to what he has granted to those that trust in him. So we're looking at chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Not an easy passage. It's one of the most difficult passages, actually, not only in the book of Romans, but all of the New Testament. So I've tried to present it from different perspectives in terms of illustrating what the passage is trying to accomplish and what it's going to do. And basically, the first part of it, first part 21 through 24, is a display of righteousness. In fact, that idea permeates the whole paragraph. In verse 21 is a display of justification. We can see something of the righteousness of God when he transforms a heart when a heart comes into contact with the living God and is, in fact, justified, it displays the righteousness of God. That's what this paragraph of one sentence is all about. I tried to illustrate it last week, so I'd like to give it again because Linda wasn't here, and this is just for you, Linda. I used kind of a movie motif, if you will, or an illustration. If you want to illustrate Chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, we could summarize that whole portion of the book of Romans as, if you look at it as a movie, condemned under wrath. The theme of God's judgment, God's wrath, condemnation, the details concerning man's depravity are all within that context. Now, in contrast to the passage that we're going to look at, I... We looked at the first couple of words there, but now, in verse 21, well, this is before that, this is then, this is what it was like before God brings the message of salvation, the message of justification, and it's a revelation of wrath. Wrath is revealed, verse 18, and Paul gives a lot of detail concerning it. We said it stars this movie, Jews and Gentiles, which includes everybody, essentially, all of humanity. This is like a poster that would advertise a movie. It's rated as total depravity. It's content and rating, triple X, 
quadruple X, you could even say. There's a warning. It deals with and consists of terrible horror. It's a horror movie. And there's a spoiler alert as well. In other words, the ending, I'm going to give it away. The ending is a hopeless one. Totally hopeless. There's no hope in man. There's no hope in anything we can do to gain any relationship with God. But there's a sequel. There's a follow-up. <laughs> a new one, The Righteousness of God, which is the alternative. And it begins with, but now. And it's a huge transition, not only in terms of theology, but a transition historically that is brought out towards the end of this paragraph. So what's showing is the righteousness of God, a display, a movie, a feature, if you will. And that's the theme because of the first and actually only independent clause. Now, one thing I left off last week, we should have had the star. The star is Jesus Christ, in contrast to uh, Jew and Gentile of the last part or the last movie. The admission is free, it's in the text, by grace, in other words, undeserving to see this, and any of man's efforts will not be accepted. You try to offer them and you'll be turned away at the door. We also said that the cost of this production is the shed blood of Christ, another theme, another emphasis of the paragraph. And the producer is perfectly satisfied with that sacrifice. That is the theological term, mercy seat, actually is the literal meaning of it, or propitiation. So theologically, that means that all of God's righteous requirements, all of God's righteous character is satisfied by the sacrifice that Christ offered. So, just a little way of trying to illustrate passage. So, we're looking at the display. That's the main theme. 21 through 26, display of righteousness. The word in the text is manifested. Some versions translate revealed. And it's more than just revealed. It is actually broadcast or displayed. And it can be observed as people enter into God's righteousness. And from that, we have all of these little parts, this very complicated sentence with all of these parts. I've tried to put it on a chart to make it easier to visualize. The first little part of it is that it's apart from law. We spent time looking at that. But but now, apart from the law, that's the first part, so it's apart from that, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So that's the essence of everything in there, this righteousness of God. Now, we spent most of our time last week just looking at this concept of righteousness. And in this context, this is one of the passages that speaks of God as righteous. In other words, he's the ultimate standard. Righteousness is a measure of standing before a standard. And if you have righteousness, then you have a right standing. We illustrated it from the Old Testament. It is in relationship to the Mosaic Law. 
and some could be called righteous. In fact, there are some in the New Testament, some in the Old Testament that are described as righteous. In most of those contexts, it's not righteous in relationship to God because none stand righteous. That's what first major section speaks of. But you can be righteous in terms of obedient to the law, fulfilling all that the law requires in terms of the sacrifices to deal with sin. And if you are in a proper relationship, you could be described as righteous in relationship to the law. So this is another legal term. We spent all of last week looking at it, the short time that we had, and I even got to it the week before. So that's the main theme of this whole thing. And now Paul is going to bring out all of these little aspects related to it. First one being it's apart from the law. In other words, you can't do anything to receive this very own righteousness that God possesses. He bestows it but it's apart from the law. So it's also witnessed by the Old Testament, and that's where we want to pick up. We didn't quite get there. That's also in verse 21. So even though it is apart from the law, it's not totally divorced from the law. In fact, the law gives witness or testimony, you could even translate it that way, to this kind of a righteousness, I've said many times that there are very few things in the New Testament that are new. Very few. Most of what we have in the New Testament comes out of, or at least has its seeds, in the Old Testament. So also this concept of righteousness before a holy God. In fact, Paul is going to do this in chapter 4. He's going to take us back and give us an example of the very first Jew. The very first Jew was justified by faith, in other words, he received righteousness on the basis of trusting what God said. So it's witnessed by the Old Testament. Verses 22 and 23, the next passage speaks of this whole thing is for believers. This righteousness of God is available. It is made manifest in the believer. It's for them. It's for the believer. So you can see a display of righteousness. You can't see the invisible God, so you can't see his righteousness. You can read about it. It's witnessed by the Old Testament, but you really can't see it until it's manifested in a life of a person, and that's what he's getting at here. How do you experience it? So how do you come into that relationship? It's by grace. In other words, undeserved. There's nothing that we can do. It's through Christ Jesus. When we get to that point, we're going to see that it's based on what he has accomplished. We'll spend some time looking at that word redemption that's in the biblical text. In fact, this text, what makes it complicated is not only the grammar and the structure and all of the parts thrown together into one sentence, but also all of these theological concepts that we have to look at carefully. So we'll do that when we get to that point. We won't get there today. 25 through 26, now it's demonstrated. In other words, it's visible, so the emphasis goes on. We have a demonstration of this righteousness. It's on display, and it's also demonstrated. That's the focus of the last two verses. It is demonstrated in that if you look back historically, All of those sacrifices didn't satisfy the righteous requirements of God 
But on the cross, all of those requirements were were met. And that was a public display on a public highway entering or exiting the city of Jerusalem. And historically, we look back at that historical event. It was demonstrated publicly is the point of Paul in verse 25. So we'll look at another theological term, propitiation. And going back, all of history, he summarizes all of history, God passed over sin. And that's why that but now is so important. But now with the death of Christ, everything is changed. God has and can give ultimate forgiveness. But he forbear man's sin, also verse 25, and now he can be declared righteous. New American Standard translates it just. In other words, he meets his own standard of holiness and righteousness, and he can be declared that. You might even have charged him beforehand as perhaps not dealing adequately with sin, and perhaps there might be a question of his justice. But in Christ, that justice is satisfied. That's propitiation. So he can be declared just and also the one who justifies. That's how the passage ends. So that's a picture of all of the parts relating to this manifestation of God's righteousness. And we'll look at each one in some detail. So we've already looked at law, how it's used in this context. He uses it in reference to the whole Old Testament. And then more specifically in verse 21, referring to the first five books. We call that Pentateuch. Last time we looked at righteousness or right standing. Theologically, and the context of this passage is righteousness in relationship to the ultimate standard, the righteousness of God himself, or the standard of God himself. So, Let's look at the little phrase, has been manifested. I think I've been stressing, been displayed, been demonstrated, been made evident, been revealed. All these words capture that idea. So it's not hidden. It's not under a bushel. It is visible. Now, you have to have spiritual eyes to see it, but it is in full view. Has been manifested. In fact, that word is used in other contexts in all of these other senses. And I think that's what's in view in this passage. It's witnessed by the Old Testament. So let's take a look at that aspect. Witnessed by the Old Testament, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The use of the word law in the first one, I mentioned key terms there probably comes from what Paul has just been dealing with in verses 19 and 20, where he uses that word as well, referring back from verses 10 through 18, where he has been quoting out of the law, and those quotations come out of the Psalms, and there's one passage out of Isaiah. That's not the Pentateuch, but it is, in fact, it's not even... You might even say it's, well, you might see part of the prophets, but Psalms are not part of the prophets, so it's the Old Testament in general. But now, law and prophets, he's using the word specifically, the law there, 
slightly different from what he did in the first part of the verse. This is not uncommon. We do this ourselves. We use one word and we might change how we're using that word in the same sentence as Paul does here. But if they're capitalized there, does that both apply to the law as was given to Moses, right? Yes. Well, no, the first one is the Old Testament. The entire And it's capitalized, yeah. In other words, it's not just a principle, but it it is the law that contains Mm -hmm. Psalms and Isaiah and other portions. But over here, he uses a common phrase that Jesus uses, law and prophets, to distinguish from a portion of the whole Old Testament, Pentateuch and the prophets. This is a common phrase, first five books, and then the rest of it is called the prophets. Just a fine point. But I think it's important here because of this idea of being witnessed. That's another legal term, another courtroom term. You following, Mary? Yeah. Okay, sort of. (laughs) Okay. Being witnessed, that's what you do in in a courtroom before a judge, before a jury, before the defense attorney and the prosecution. You give your testimony or your observations concerning a crime or whatever is the issue in a court. That's a typical word. In fact, it's related to the the word that is used the most often that is the major theme of the book of Acts. It's a major word there where the disciples gave witness to death, resurrection, primarily resurrection of Christ, and in that people came into a saving relationship. So being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we have an Old Testament witness. The verb, it's a verb in this context, to give testimony or to give a witness. It's in a participial form, but it's the verbal form. The meaning is to testify as an observer. That's the legal sense or in a courtroom sense. And in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 17.6, what was the requirement? Two witnesses. Two or more. You have to have at least two or more, otherwise you don't have a case. And what are the two witnesses in this context? That's why he distinguishes it. In other words, we have a witness from the Pentateuch, and we also have a witness from the prophets. So I think Paul is using Jewish thinking here. So the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament in that context right there. So you can find evidence from first five books of the Bible of this concept of righteousness. In fact, that's the law. The law spells out the standard, and it also spells out how to basically enter into a relationship. So also, and Paul uses the Psalms and Isaiah and other passages, so you have a twofold witness here. So it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verses 22 and 23, we have the dispensing of justification. In other words, how does it reach mankind? How is it dispensed? How do people enter in? And when people enter in, that adds to the display, or actually that makes the display visible. So verse 22, he's already spelled out the righteousness of God. And I think he's saying, Even the same righteousness 
In other words, God's very own righteousness, the ultimate standard, even it. But how do you come into it and how does it impact humanity? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Now it goes also back. This is how it can be seen. This is how it's demonstrated. You can see a transformed life. So we have, apart from the law, witnessed by the Old Testament for believers. So let's take a closer look at that. It's through faith, and this is the fundamental passage, a theological passage of all of Scripture that spells out that justification is by faith and faith alone. And it couldn't be clearer. It distinguishes between a law righteousness of which you cannot reach the standard, because perfection is what is needed, and no one can reach it. No Jew ever did. So it's apart from the law. But it's not foreign or divorced from the law. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets in that same idea of justification by faith can be found even in the book of Genesis. And that's where Paul is going to take us in chapter 4. So it's through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to talk about what is faith like? What is biblical faith? Because the world and a lot of even believers are a little confused or fuzzy about it. It's not complicated. It's simple. But when we speak of biblical faith, we have to always include what the faith is in. Faith always has an object, okay? And it is biblical faith that saves is always in Christ Jesus. Very fundamental, very basic, but very, very important. A lot of unbelievers will say, well, I have faith. Well, you have to question them. What is your faith in? And it boils down, we always have faith in ourselves. In other words, I have faith that I'm doing okay. I have faith that God's going to accept me. I have faith that it's always in oneself. That is not saving faith. In fact, that's the opposite of it. So saving and biblical faith always has a proper object, and it has to be not in anything that we do before God, because all of that is filthy rags, that's righteous as if it doesn't have any merit. It has to be faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just faith, nebulous faith in Jesus Christ, because the passage later on, it's faith in what Christ accomplished on our behalf. That's biblical faith. So, first of all, there's no other way. Paul has stressed that. The first movie ends in a hopeless situation. He's drilled that in all of those passages from 118 all the way to 320. So there's no other way. There's nothing we can do. He begins even verse 21. It's apart from the law, apart from doing things. So there's no other way. The word dia, the Greek word, means through. In other words, this is the means that God has set up the channel, if you will, by which God will impute. We'll talk about that word. It's not in this context, but I want to mention it early on because later on it's going to be expanded in chapter 4. 
the idea of putting something to someone else's credit. That's imputation. Another theological term. It's God making a deposit. It's an accounting term. God making a deposit of righteousness in our bank account, our spiritual bank account. It's through the agency or the means of faith. So faith is important. Now, I think, and I think there's reason to believe that even faith is a gift of God. Everything ultimately stems from him. So it always has an object. So biblical and saving faith has to have a proper object. And salvation comes when we give up all hope in anything that we can accomplish, anything that we do, any merit that we can bring, giving that up and placing our faith in what Christ has done. So it always has an object. It is faith in Christ. And just to kind of cement that, let's look up some other passages that relate to that. Somebody nine, look up 9.33, John 1.12. Who's got 9.23 real quick? Okay. Douglas, John 1.12. Linda, 3. This is also John 3.15.16. Got it? Galatians 2.16. Okay. And why don't you get the last one there, Craig? Okay. Mary Lee 216 and Craig 319. Okay, 933, you got it, Douglas? Read it loud so that everybody can hear. You have to all who received him, to go and see believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, he gives the right to become children of God to whom? All who believe in him. Receive and believe. John 112. These are fundamental passages, but we need to stress them. Because there's some confusion sometimes even within the body of Christ. Who's got that one? Linda? Yep. Nope, you did. Alrighty, alrighty then. John 1.12. 1.12. Uh, but as many as received this one. Nope. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to God. I think that's one you did. Yeah. You can look up 9.33 on your own. We read that one twice. Yeah. John 3. 1560. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only God Son, that whoever believes in him shall perish but have eternal life. Okay, stress two times, believing in him for eternal life. It's the means by which we receive eternal life. Nothing that we can do in ourselves. Galatians 2.16, Mary Lee. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Okay, is that clear enough? Can't be justified by the works of the law. Parallels the Roman passage. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Jesus in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Okay, emphasized over and over. By faith and faith alone. Justification by faith. Craig, you got three Galatians three twenty-two. Oh, you got it. Jacob's got it. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Faith, belief, same context. In 
Jesus Christ. Kind of. Just going to say the 933, I think Romans. Yes. Okay. You said John, but you meant Romans. I meant Romans. Yeah, Romans 933 is another one. Right. You have it? Yeah, and that says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Believes on him will not be put to shame. Okay, Romans 9.30. Okay, and notice it's stressed, even the righteousness of God through faith, that's the means, and who is it for? If you didn't get it the first time, for all who believe. Same concept. Through faith, the noun, and now we have the verb. All who believe, same concept, same idea. All who believe goes back to Jesus Christ. And then it concludes, for there is no distinction. What does that remind you of? Jew and and Gentile. In other words, the stars of the horror show. There's no distinction. Jews come the same way. Gentiles come the same way. Jews and Gentile, both in a hopeless condition. Now the only solution is faith in Christ Jesus. Fundamental, basic, even though there's some distortion within some circles. So verse 23, now he's going to kind of remind us. The no distinction, the four ties back to it. In other words, reminding us of everything that he talked about in chapter 118 through 320. For all have sinned, universal. And you might even see, this is a summary of all of world history, even in the past, present, and will be so until God ultimately deals with with evil. For all have sinned. You're familiar with that Greek word there, the idea of falling short. No one reaches the standard. Falling short is emphasized in the next phrase there, fall short of the glory of God, ultimate perfection. Anything less than that does not meet the standard. Anything less than that is condemned. Fall short of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, in most contexts, looks at the totality of God of all that God is. In other words, a summation, you might even say, of all of his perfections. Full glory. And I get that from uh, Exodus 33, where Moses asks, show me your glory, and what does God do? He gives him just a glimpse of it because he couldn't handle the full glory of God. And what is listed in that context? But when Moses asks, God passes... And what's described is his loving kindness, his mercy. But basically, a list of attributes, not all of them, but enough of them to get the idea that when we speak of the glory of God, we're speaking of the totality of who he is. And we have an example of that in that passage. And we fall short of that. And falling short of that basically means that we don't meet the standard. So all have sinned, and that brings us to the next passage. Verse 21 is the display of justification. 22 and 23, the dispensing of justification. Now we're going to have a more clear description in verse 24 of justification. What does it look like? What's on display? What is manifested? Well, first of all, it's by grace. Verse 24. By grace. 
Okay. Verse 24. Being justified. This takes us back to what we talked about earlier. Last time, last two weeks. The word in English is the same word as what in the Greek text and also the Hebrew text. Righteousness, except it's a verb form. Yep, the word justification has the idea of theologically not to make righteous, but to give righteousness or declare righteous. It has this legal idea of being in a courtroom and standing before a judge that judge doesn't make that individual innocent, okay? But it does declare that individual to be in a right standing before the law. We use the word acquitted. Now, if a person did not commit the crime, he's acquitted or he's declared to be righteous in relationship to the law. That's the meaning of the word justification. It's a declaring of uh, righteousness, so, so it's the a person thing? is not righteous, the person is not uh, uh, just or anything, but the judge has said, because of this, I give this, I, I give this to you as something, as, as uh, something that I'm giving to you, yes. not because you are. Exactly. So the person and it's by, it's undeserved, it's by grace. So the person yeah, is standing before the judge is guilty. Well, that is wiped clean. Just As he gives that. Yes. But he's not made. In other words, we are not made righteous immediately. There will be a future day when we will be made righteous when our sinful nature is removed. But at salvation, we are declared. And in terms of the standard, we are wiped clean, but we still have the old nature. Does that make sense? So we don't want to confuse the two. There, there has been a doctrine of perfectionism in the church that I think is not biblical that comes from the idea of being made righteous at the moment of salvation. It's a growth process. We are declared, and in terms of God's standard, he views us as perfectly righteous, and it's credited, we'll get to that, it's credited to our account, but we still have the sin nature. There are two aspects to justification. There's a positive, and there's a, well, there's a negative first, and there's a positive. There's the forgiveness of sin. The judge declares crime has been dealt with, and it's been dealt with adequately. That's why it's important that we have, that Christ die on the cross, he paid the penalty such that God is perfectly righteous to declare us and to impute to us the full righteousness of Christ. That makes sense? We use a lot of theological words here. But what's that minus? That's the minus, right? The forgiveness of sin. Is that to zero? Yes. I'm just a little slow and... So I have a, a practical situation. If you confront a person with blatant sin in their who is a believer, a believer, and say, and you say, you consider yourself righteous, and they make a statement, yes, I'm righteous, but I have sin in my life, but I do have sin. So technically, 
in God's eyes as a believer, you're declared righteous. Yes. But you are not righteous. Correct. Okay. You still have a sin (coughs) that is sinful. In fact, as believers, we can do exactly the same as what we did when we were unbelievers and worse. Right. Because we have that capacity and that nature. Right. But before God, we are totally forgiven once and for all. Right. That's the negative aspect of justification. Our slate is wiped clean. The second aspect, we are imputed. This is the positive. So we come to zero using uh, Linda's mathematical idea. This is Glenn's idea. Oh, Glenn's idea. Okay, we, the negative is we are burdened with sin. That is removed. Now we're at zero. The imputing or the crediting of righteousness to our account is the positive. And we're credited with his very own righteous. We have a new capacity now, a new source of way and a way of living now, Bill. That's that's where first John one nine fits in. It interfaces perfectly here. For we're taught uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness is made possible because by Christ's sacrifice and our being declared righteous before God. Yes. We still need to clean the slate yes. with him, and that's what that passage On a daily about. basis, yeah. But it's enabled by this. Yes, exactly. So so in other words, we, we instead of having a negative balance that's horribly negative, that we're never going to work through. It's maybe a sit in there in our account or whatever, if you want to say that. So we keep having to go to him to have that righteousness put in to keep us on a positive credit so we right. can continue going here. Yeah, the first John 1, 9, I believe, pertains to the believer. Yeah. Absolutely. That already is credited with righteousness but has allowed sin to come in from the old nature. Well, but that's the same thing as this is right here. Yeah, that's right. First John one nine is made possible by this. Because of that. This first John one nine is not possible without the justification right. Right. generated by the Using the family analogy, what this passage is talking about is God has adopted us into the family and we have the standing and all of the privileges of the family. We are part of the family of God, but we can still disobey the Father and be out of fellowship with the Father. He doesn't cast us out of the family, but we have to restore that relationship. That restoration is what Bill's talking about. That restoration is the first John one nine. For now we admit, yes, I've I have stepped out of what you would desire for me. And I want to restore that. And that's the cleansing of the unrighteousness. That's right. Linda. Okay, what Glenn said. I think that, okay, salvation doesn't, it's like continuous. Like you could be salvation from a ship or salvation from a hospital. You know, right. Like, so you get at the beginning, you, yeah, but then all, all along the way, it says if you call on the name of God, you will be saved. But that isn't what makes you that's like, that's, you already have to be saved before you can call on his name. I don't get that. Like you call on, so if I call on the name of God, I will be saved. That's my salvation. Well, what if I sin? Then I call on the name of God to get me out of that sin. Well, you confess it. Verse John yeah, right. 1-9. Right. 
like Psalm 51. It's been dealt with once and for all. Okay. Once and for all, it's dealt with. So there, there is a sense in which we are totally forgiven of all past, all present, all future sin. That's justification by faith. Okay. But we can break fellowship as children of God in the family of God. We can break fellowship, and we need to continually restore that by confessing it, and then he restores that fellowship for giving that ongoing idea of sin. Two different things, but it's like Bill is saying, this justification is the basis for the first John one night. Betty. So you're not saying so when is it that we say that God actually uh, not sees us, but we some righteous perfection on our death or at his coming? Um, I would say at his coming, which is almost simultaneous. Yeah, that's glorification, what we call glorification. In other words, I think that happens at the moment that we go to be with him, whether it be rapture or whether it be death. When we go to be... Rapture, where the sin nature is removed. You said at one point we achieve perfection. That's glorification. We don't achieve it until we get rid of this sinful nature, and that continues till we die, physically. Okay, so when we die, we are if we are justified, yes, in Christ. No. A good model for this is that. We are in the midst of a sea of sin that's constantly pushing us to sin. We don't realize it, just like a fish doesn't realize it's in water, but it's very real. And one of the major benefits of going to heaven is being done with this constant push to sin. Yep. Yep. We'll be freed from this. Okay. We need to close and we'll pick up here next week. I just wanted to address Linda's concern because it sounded like a different when you were talking Linda about calling on the name of God and salvation, the first time calling on God and calling out to God, once you've done that and you've established a relationship, any other time you're calling out, you're calling out to them. But calling out, calling on the name of God, like help people, that does not make you part of the text. No, that's if you do that after you part. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Okay, we'll come back to this, and this is where we'll start. Okay, who wants to close? All right, Mary. Father, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around this, because quite frankly, our minds do not understand you. And sin has infected our thinking. Sin keeps looking for a way to accuse us before you. Always, sin always seeks to accuse us. So, Father, as we go through this week, as we ponder this, I pray that you would be at work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our very spirits, to begin to reveal to your children just what it means to be a part of the family of God, just like an infant born into the family. There's no concept of his or her standing within the family, and that is a learned process. So, Lord, I pray that you will actively be instructing us so that as we mature in you, we can better, better, better come to appreciate and rejoice in the amazing gift of justification, empty 
justification and righteousness and all of these big terms, that we will be able to grasp them more fully and they will be part of the way we live our lives. So we are grateful we praise you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.